Welcome to the Room of Lives. I am your host, Neil. In this part of my conversation with artist and writer Mariam Monalisa Gharavi, we talk about serendipity and his relation to the collective unconscious of Carl Jung and collective and intergenerational trauma. The serendipity thing. I had a, I had a, I had a thought about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, when you're thinking about idea, things pop up. But do you feel like your life is more serendipitous than that? Like, do you feel like magical, synchronistic, coincidental, serendipitous things happen? I have two responses to that question. Hmm. One is I'm more and more interested in Jungian analysis. And I think Jung is really one of the, uns well, he's not unsung, he's Jung. Mm. But for me, he has been unsung until recently. And I'm devouring a lot of, um, I guess, the psychoanalytic framework that descended from him. And serendipity mm. is very much a part of that framework. And I wish I could articulate it in a way that sounds somewhat intelligible, but I'm learning about it even as I'm talking to you about it, that, you know, it isn't just magical thinking, right? Yeah. That there are, he is, he is known, quite known for coming up with the idea of a collective unconscious. Yeah. That yeah, yeah. if there's something implicit about our con, you know, you have this kind of baseline, you're not a blank canvas necessarily, but as a child, mm -hmm. certain certain things are implicitly marked with, within you and you grow up and you may not have a lot of access to that implicit memory, but you may if you mm -hmm. trammel your thought process and, and do consciousness raising work and therapy or what have you, and then you could integrate implicit and explicit memory. That's a process of integration. So that idea alone is interesting. And then you try to imagine mm -hmm. his vision of a collective unconscious. Oh, so yeah. in that sense, it makes so much sense that serendipity is not some kind of, right, the, the common understanding, even my own sometimes of like, I can't believe this is happening, that it's yeah. not actually magic. Yeah. Um, that's my first thought about it. Let me try to see if I remember my second. Yeah, do you have a response to that before... I talk oh, about the yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm to, yeah, there's like a lot of thoughts. You look like you have something to say, and I really like your papaya <laughs> shirt, by the way. Oh, thank I know. you, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, so the collective unconscious thing. Um, so I encountered this idea not through Jung, but through like a derivative thing. So there was a guy, he was a, a professor of religious studies who took 70-something really high doses of LSD. And uh, he, he did it throughout his entire life. He did it like in sort of secret. Nobody knew about it at his work. But then he wrote a book called LSD and the Mind of the Universe. And I read this book. And in this book was the first time I learned of the uh, concept of the collective unconscious. Because he was saying that on like moderate doses of LSD, what happens is that you kind of sink deeper into your psyche. And 
things that are underneath your psyche, under the visible layer starts coming up, but still, it's still your personal psychology. And uh, what happens if you go deeper than that is you start experiencing the psychologies of people and things that are related to you. And if you go even deeper than that, you can have the perspective or experience of whole populations. Like you can relive the experience of an entire population that's undergoing genocide. Um, and so in order to make sense of these experiences, he used the framework of, I think Stanislav Grof, who was like this psychedelics researcher, also used this idea of transpersonal psychology. And he was basically saying that on deep doses of psychedelics, you break through into a more collective um, transpersonal um, layer of psychology in which collective trauma is contained. So at that point, the trauma that you're experiencing is no longer your personal trauma because you're like, fuck, this never happened to me, but it happened to some broader consciousness and now it's you've reached that you've broken through and you're experiencing the trauma of a whole population or something like that and that really challenges a lot of modern neuroscience because we think of like we first of all we don't yet know what consciousness is but if there is something we think of it as properties of individual brains and so to think that oh no there can be perspectives or consciousnesses at all different levels, not just at the level of your body, but at the level of whole collections of beings and then maybe a whole earth consciousness, things like that are... Uh, I have sometimes felt in my life some wave of depression is coming up and I cannot figure out why I'm feeling this way and there's no link to anything. And then a thought popped in my head is like, well, in many ways, the whole planet is suffering. And if all our psychological, psychic energies are, are interconnected in some kind of underground current and we don't really know, then it's constantly mixing. And if there's suffering going on elsewhere, it's not too surprising that at some point it can flow through me because I'm part of this and I have no idea why I'm feeling this way. And, 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 and I also had the idea that it is part of our duty to experience the trauma of the universe. Um, or, yeah, I don't know if it's the duty is the right word, but it's just because we are off it, we are going to experience it. There's no way for us to be able to completely cut us off from the trauma of other people. And thank God, because if that were the case, then, you know, you could just split the world into the haves and the have nots and it would work fine. But it constantly keeps leaking, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's because of this leaking that's empathy. And so you cannot stop the suffering from entering if it's happening elsewhere. So in a way, the thought that I had was that let's be thankful for this. This is what keeps the universe going is because we feel each other suffering. Um, and on the, uh, on the note of like Jungian, I haven't read much of Jung, but what I understood was that one difference between like the way that he writes and the way that someone like Freud writes is a kind of dichotomy where I see that there's a kind of Western analytical, more male ego where it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to analyze you. And, and then there's a different kind of psychology where I think it's a little bit more humble, where it, it does not come so much from a place of ego. And I don't know, I'm just kind of talking out of my ass here. Yeah. But, to go backward from the very last thing you said, yeah. uh, one of the reasons I am so drawn to the Jungian psychoanalytic 
lineage is some of the people that come from that, like Bowlby and Ainsworth, uh, whose names are maybe becoming more popularized given the popularization of attachment theory, Mm -hmm. have a lot to kind of offer. I, I tend to think of attachment theory as one of the great gifts uh, of of Western science. Mm-hmm. I would honestly, without exaggeration, put it on par with penicillin. Mm. Uh, that's how deeply I am a proponent of it. And it mm-hmm. goes exactly to what you said that in the Freudian framework, um, the idea in the 19th century Victorian European <laughs> circle that formed mm. there was that if a child was brought in for analysis, then others were asked to leave the room. Like the mother wasn't it, there. It was about the, the child and the mind of the child. And it isn't until some of the early arising of the attachment model and actually Bowlby and Ainsworth own biography, Jung's biography. Uh, I, I like to read these like Wikipedia biographies of these people because you can kind of see how the re- the relational fraying or the mm. the displacement of relationality in their own early childhoods. But that idea was bunk. It was like, well, actually, the relation between this child and his or her maternal caretaker, often maternal, not mm-hmm. only maternal has a lot to do with who this child is becoming, right? I'm, I'm really deeply simplifying it mm. um, for shorthand, but this was not a given at all. And so attachment theory, as I said, I think it's becoming a lot more popularized. And I want to also caution this idea of it, like, being this label, I think another Western framework is like categorization, linearity, mm. labeling mm. of everything like, oh, you are securely attached, therefore yeah. X, Y, Z, rather than actually these are references. These are yeah. scientific references that may offer mm. some some other insights. They are malleable. They are not meant to be linear. Going back to a collective unconscious and again, I, I do really enjoy evidence-based work. Um, it makes a lot of sense what you say about some of the these controlled experiments with psychedelics, of course. And even outside of that, in the field of epigenetics, uh, I recently mm-hmm. learned that the epigenetic framework is particular around the mother line. In other words, the match epigenetics... And whether or not certain markers of genes are turned on or off for, say, collectivized trauma, generational trauma, etc., much of that is seen to come through a matrilineal line. Mm. And that's something that in my own personal life, uh, I've been, I've had the opportunity, I would like to say fortune, not misfortune, the real opportunity and the luxury of thought to be able to map out what my matrilineal line is like. Um, I know my mother, I know my grandmother, I was, my great grandmother was alive and I met her. I never met my great grandmother, but I know her name Mm -hmm. and I have a little bit of an idea around what Mm -hmm. the live, not as much as I'd like, not as much as my, you know, research can carry me yet. I have some idea of what it was like, what these women's lives were like Mm. and not to sort of envelop everything in one 
big uh, truism, but if it's also true that your grandmother is in some way carrying you because she's carrying at what, five months, the fetus, the female fetus is also being mm -hmm. born with all of her eggs. So your grandmother is carrying you, then it would make a lot of sense given hormones, given all of the, the many, many processes that are happening inside the physical and emotional, these things are not separate, the emotional, physical body of these women, it would make sense that I am somewhat at least capable of being the beneficiary of their trauma or their triumph. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I sit with all the time. The second part I was going to mention to your question about the question you brought up earlier about serendipity is, I don't know if this is related to what we're talking about, but um, I think what's been very dissatisfying for me as someone growing up in the culture, whatever culture you want to say, just growing up in this society is how much we're taught to centralize ourselves in our lives, mm -hmm. that we design our life, that we lead our life. And I want to question that. And I'm in the process of really deeply questioning that thesis. Uh, I know the work of many religions is to center not you, but to center God. Yeah. And whether or not, you know, you are the follower of a religion, whether or not you think of some of, of, of a divine creator, a creator, mother nature, the source, mm -hmm. or maybe none at all, or, mm -hmm. or the greater consciousness, or maybe none at all. Mm -hmm. There is something to be said for what I'm on now, which is not trying to lead my life, but instead follow my life. Yeah. And that, that doesn't sit well with someone who's very controlling. I mean, I, I, I think of most of us, right? Like, I assume you're a millennial like me. Mm -hmm. uh, to be in control of your life and to exact a kind of discipline over your life and mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, that is part and parcel of the emotional life of millennials, I would argue, because so much is out of control. The economy, the being worse off than any other generation before us, are being worse being worse off than our parents unlike any other generational mobility before us um the the de degradation of gender equity i mean the end of fossil fuels i could keep going mm -hmm. so we're very controlling i think in our own lives to exact a kind of discipline and control and i'm all for that i you know tried to wake up and failed to wake up at 5 a.m today or woke up and snoozed the clock so like something as simple as you know can you wake up the time that you want to wake up right but I'm, I, I think I mean in a much more expansive way, I've been reflexively asking myself this question of what would it look like if you followed your life mm -hmm. rather than led your life? What kind of acceptance would that require from you? And that question, I, I want to say that that's kind of a Jungian question also. Um, Maybe not necessarily along the lines of serendipity or like I'm living mm. in magical thinking or I'm waiting for something to happen. Certainly not. Mm. Certainly not. Uh, all of us have ego. All of us have to get out of bed in the morning and put our pant legs or our skirts on one leg at a time. No one's going to do that for us. Certainly there's the place of, of an autonomous ego at play. But I've been trying to challenge myself a little bit more in terms of detachment from outcome and mm -hmm. 
what would it look like uh, to be accepting of the contention that I am a follower and not a leader of my own life? Mm. It's a radical rethinking than I think I, I have been used to. And uh, it's decentered. It's decentered myself from my life in a way that is often uncomfortable and I think really necessary. And not because, you know, not because I'm trying to be somewhat more selfless or I'm trying to do anything. It's, it's rather, um, it, it, it actually, one of the ways that I've seen it play out is it invites a lot more personal responsibility. That's for sure. Mm. But also... In other words, being very aware of what I can, cons- what I can control yeah. and being much more detached from what I cannot control. Yeah. Thanks for joining Mona Lisa and me today in the Room of Lives. In the next part, I bring up that her art frequently comments on politics, economy and technology, all heavily male dominated areas. Is the current state and movement in these spheres influenced by a male ego run amok? Mm-hmm.